Several years ago, and I've actually, I've lost track of how many years ago it was, at least six, I read a book by Eric Metaxas called Bonhoeffer. Um, anybody here read Bonhoeffer? Uh, it's a big, big book. It's the biography of German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, became involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler and was executed by the Nazis just a few days before the end of of World War II. Uh, the background to all of that happening is really very, very interesting. There uh, was a movement in Bonhoeffer's time prior to World War II to consolidate all of the Protestant churches in Germany um, as one church, one pro-Nazi church. And so what happened were fanatical Nazis in all of these various Protestant denominations would elect people who were uh, favorable to the Nazi party to hold positions of church leadership, and eventually they succeeded in bringing the entire church uh, under one heading in Protestant Germany, and it indeed was uh, driven along by Nazi politics. And once everybody had seized control and this church had formed, they created in their controlling documents something called the Aryan Paragraph, if you're familiar with all of the dynamics of World War II, you understand Aryan meant the superior race, the white race, and more than just the white race, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white, white race. And they created this paragraph, and the paragraph said that any pastor of ethnic Jewish um, lineage, not a, not a practicing Jew, but any pastor of ethnic Jewish lineage, or any pastor who was married to someone of ethnic Jewish lineage, could no longer serve in the church, and they were defrocked. And that was the final straw for these who had held on. And so Bonhoeffer was part of a group that, that pulled back and became separate from that, and began to position itself as the true church in Germany. And they called themselves the Confessing Church. Now, why they called themselves the Confessing Church was because they said our beliefs are based on a confession of faith and not Nazi party politics. And their declaration of their faith is something called the Barman Declaration, and the first two tenets of it are important for us today, believe it or not, um, as we think about the passage we'll be studying together. Tenet one in the Barman Declaration was, the source of revelation is only the Word of God. Now, as Baptists, we hear the Word of God and we immediately think Bible, but that's not what was meant in the Barman Declaration. It says again, the source of revelation is the only Word of God, Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the source of revelation, the only source of revelation. Any other possible sources will not be accepted. And then, uh, statement two, Jesus Christ is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There shall be no other authority. So, Jesus is the only revelation. Jesus is the only authority. And the confessing church began to hold on to these things so dearly in opposition to the church driven along by the Nazi party that they began to experience persecution. And many of those, like Bonhoeffer, who were leaders in the confessing church, eventually lost their lives, positioning themselves as the true church against the false church. Now, that debate over what is the true church did not die at the end of World War II nor was it born in World War II. The debate over what is indeed the true church has been ongoing almost since the church's founding, and we find that wrestling match taking place in our passage today. Would you find, please, in your copy of God's Word, 2 John. 
one chapter book towards the end of our New Testament. We are in a series of messages from the letters of John. We've spent months with a break, obviously, because of the quarantine. We've spent months in 1 John. We're going to spend two weeks in 2 John. We'll spend two weeks in 3 John. And then we will take a kind of a standalone break for Labor Day. And then uh, the beginning of the new church year, September 13th, we will begin uh, a month's long study of the book of Revelation. And everybody's going, yay, you'll hate me when it's done. You will hate me when it's done because I am not interested in satisfying your curiosity or filling out your calendar because the book itself is not interested in satisfying your curiosity or filling out your calendar. The reason the book was written was because the church, a beleaguered church in Asia Minor, was wondering, is there any hope? And John says, of course there is. Jesus is coming back. And so the title of the series is Fear Not. That's the word of the book of Revelation, and we'll be getting there eventually, but today we are in 2 John, and I hope you've found it in your copy of God's Word. Let's begin reading it together. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Several things we need to make sure we're hanging on to as compass points in those first two verses so we can go further. First of all, the author calls himself the elder. So why? Because he never mentions that he is John the Apostle. Do we believe that John the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus Christ, is the author of this letter? It has to do with style and content. The style of the writing is like the other books of the Bible that are attributed to John. The content, the themes, the things that he develops are similar to the themes developed by other books we know were um, uh, authored by the Apostle John. So why didn't he just say it? Why does he call himself why does, why does he call himself the elder? Well, it's really more than anything else a sign of the, the warm relationship he has with the recipient. Um, you you uh, may refer to me um, by a lot of things, frankly, but you may you may refer to me at times as your pastor. You you do that um, because I am your pastor. I'm one of your pastors, and that is that is a warm greeting that that you might share with me. That that's what's going on here. So the elder is John. Then he says that he is writing to the elect lady and her children. Now there are really only two options here. He is either writing to a woman and her children. Or, and the resounding belief of people who study this is this, he is writing to a church, the elect lady, and her children, the members. Now, this is actually a beautiful picture because we see in the New Testament that the church is routinely referred to as the bride of Christ. And so, uh, the children of the bride of Christ are the product of the redeeming mission of the Savior and the redeeming mission of the church, carrying his message into the world. So, John the Elder is writing to a church and her members, 
And then we uh, see what he thinks about the church and her members. He says, I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John loves that word truth, but he's going to use it in a way that is different than maybe what we would be inclined to think about it. In churches like ours, when we hear the word truth, we would tend to think of it as the the content of our belief. So when we say that we believe the truth, we would be referencing our doctrine, we would be uh, referencing um, our, our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message, uh, we would be referencing something that we could hand to someone and they could read, or a book that we could give to someone and they could study. That's not how John uses the word truth. When John uses the word truth, it is more in the sense of what is true. So, so he's writing about, about what is true, and he's celebrating the relationship that, that he as the elder has with the church and her members because of what is true. And it really goes even deeper than that. What is true is, is actually personified, can be known. Look at how he says it. He says, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. What he's getting at is that he believes what is true, and you believe what is true, and in fact, we believe in who is true. We believe in Jesus. So, it would be just as as appropriate to read his words, whom I love in Jesus, this church and her members, whom I love in Jesus, not only I, but also who know Jesus, so everybody else who is a part of the body of Christ loves you as well, because of the Jesus that abides in us and will be in us forever. So that's what's going on in those first two verses. He's saying, I, an elder, a leader of this church, one of the and it's organized differently than how our churches are organized. We'll get there in a few more weeks. But as a leader of this church, I write to you and your members, and, and I'm just overflowing with the love that we share in what is true and who is true that we share in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, pretty standard apostolic greeting. He said, grace and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. We see that over and over again in these books of the New Testament called epistles or letters. And then he gets down to kind of brass tacks. So if he just knocked on a door and said, hey, it's the elder, and they'd say, well, come on in. They'd chat for a little bit, and then at some point, the, the, the people who had invited the elder in would say, why, why, why are you here? What, what did you drop by for? And he says, he says, I rejoice, this is the reason I'm writing you, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, again, remember, some of your church members, walking in truth just as we were commanded by the Father. He, he's, he's come across some members of the church. He, he lives away from where they are. They've come through. He's been impressed by them. He's been impressed because he sees them walking in the truth. Now, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, and John, used the word walk or walking differently. Paul almost always uses the word walk or walking as a, mean, a means of identifying conduct. So, he says, for instance, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. 
that's fancy words for if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, act like it. You know, live that kind of life. Live that life out. But John uses it differently. It's, it's subtle, but it's profound. He, he uses the word walking not to refer to conduct as much as he does commitment. And so here's what he's doing. He's saying, you know, some of your members came my way. And as I observed them and knew why they were there, they were in all likelihood sent by the sending church, the elect lady, to, to advance the cause of Christ, the mission of Christ, to do evangelism, to do mission work. As I observed them, I was just blown away at the radical commitment they have to Jesus Christ. See, there's difference. You can see somebody who's moral and upright, and you can think, man, what a good person. It's not what John's doing. John's looking at them, and he's just blown away at their commitment. I, I, I just see a radical commitment of, of their life. A couple of years ago, about right now, I was doing some work for the regional arm of our denomination that put me, and this is how important I was to the denomination, put me in the middle of nowhere in north central Nebraska. <laughs> uh, just nobody there. You can't imagine how empty uh, north central Nebraska is. And I'd gone there to visit one of our denominational pastors, a guy I just have incredible respect for. Texted him this morning, told him I was going to talk about him, uh, a guy named Joel Wentworth. Uh, those churches up there are so small, so small and so widespread that they can't get pastors. They, they can't afford a pastor. Um, and, and even if there were people that would be willing, and there are people in this world who are willing to, to do it for nothing, there's nobody there. And so what Joel did was he pastored churches. He, he, he rode the circuit. How many people ever heard circuit riding preachers? And a few, a few of us. It means that he just wasn't in one. He, he pastored multiple churches. Here was his Sunday morning. He would get in his van, had 250,000 miles on it. He'd pray he'd start, and then he'd be off driving. He'd drive about 30 minutes to this little building out in the middle of nowhere. He'd open it up. He'd open up the lights. Uh, 15, 20 people would come in. And he would preach to them, and then they'd go to Sunday school. And the reason that he did that out of order, because as we all know, just as Jesus wants us to open presents on Christmas morning, Jesus wants us to go to Sunday school first and then worship. I mean, that's just kind of how we're wired, except you all. And uh, the reason he did that is because he would preach, and then he would drive, when they went to Sunday school, another 30 minutes or so, show up at another church building in the middle of nowhere, and I did this with him, show up in the middle of nowhere, and, and he would preach to those people. And as I remembered, it was two different sermons, where one church was and what they needed, needed one kind of encouragement from God's Word, and then Joel preached a different kind of sermon uh, to uh, that church. Then he drove 30 minutes home, stayed in his recliner for about 20 minutes, 
And then we both, again, and this is how every Sunday went, got in that van with 250,000 miles on it, drove another 30 minutes. And folks, I thought I'd been in the middle of nowhere at that point. I literally drove to a place that had to have had a sign somewhere that says, you are officially in the middle of nowhere. And he would meet with men and their sons in a discipleship group for about a couple of hours. And then he would go home and that was his Sunday. And the rest of his week, you can't imagine what the rest of his week is like. That was, that was how Joel was. Now, if I had Joel here today, you'd know he wasn't Johnson County. He'd look like a cowboy. He'd be right here, and he'd be a quiet dude and not say a word. You'd, you'd obviously know that he's different. But as you got to know him, you would also see, okay, this is an upright guy. But as you began to really examine his life, what you'd come away with is that I cannot believe how radically committed to Jesus that guy is. And that's what had happened to John. John had seen some people come through and he couldn't believe how radically committed to Jesus they were. He was the only thing that mattered to them. They were, they were willing to orient everything in their lives around him and what Jesus wanted them to do. And he says, church, I just need to tell you, I've seen some of you, and it's blown me away. And I just want to celebrate that with you in your life. And then he says, and now I ask, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, next week we'll know why that's very important. But, but he says, I've seen you doing good. I want you to keep doing good. And so here's the only thing I've got to tell you. You need to love one another. But then, and this is so important because that word love Love God, love Jesus, love the church, thrown around so much. He defines it. What do you mean that we should love one another? How are we to love one another? He says, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you had heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to love one another, and here's how you do it. Obey the commands of Jesus. Be obedient to what Jesus asked us to do. Live holy lives. It's a reflection of what Christ had said. What's the most important thing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what does that mean? The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to love God, you want to be obedient to his commands, you love one another, you live holy lives, you live righteous lives, you live the lives distinct, you are a royal priesthood, according to Peter, a chosen people, a holy nation, a peculiar people set apart for the purposes of God. Live that kind of life. If you really love Jesus, you'll love each other, and you love each other by being obedient to the commands of Christ. Now again, we're going to find out next week why this particular command was so important for them, but I want us to make sure we in summary know what he is saying. John is writing to this church and he's saying, I commend you for the obvious commitment to Christ, the radical commitment to Christ that you are demonstrating, and I encourage you to keep it up by loving one another. And in those words, 
we begin to have an idea, a broad picture of what the true church really is. The true church is always caught on the precipice of two equal but opposite errors. One error is to define the truth apart from love, and the other error is to define love apart from truth. In one error, we separate doctrine from the person of Christ, and then we objectify the faith. So in other words, what we do is we have people who say, what must I do to be saved? And we say, you got to know some stuff. And so here's some stuff to know. And they look at it, and they believe it. And we ask them, well, do you believe that to be true? Yep. Welcome to the family of God. And so we make the faith a thing to be studied, to be dissected. And so we so overemphasize truth that we really de-emphasize this is not just about passing a pop quiz on theology. It's about knowing Jesus. Then the other thing that we do is we separate a doctrine from the person of Jesus in the sense that we can make Jesus into our own image. I mean, there's a, there's a quote, probably you've seen it go around, say, you, you know that, that we have successfully created God in our own image when he hates all the same people we hate? Have you heard that quote? That's what you do when, when you take the truth of what God's Word says about Jesus and, and, and really separate it completely from who Jesus is. And so Jesus becomes, honestly, an idol, a false idol that we've created in our own image and who supports our own biases. If you want to paint uh, really, the liberal conservative divide in the American church has nothing to do with politics or culture or anything like that. The liberal conservative divide is between one side of the church that has objectifies the faith and one side of the church that has subjectified Jesus. And the true church doesn't do that. So what does the true church do? First, the true church is characterized by Christ's truth, characterized by Christ's truth. Now remember, as John uses the word truth, it refers less to doctrinal content than it does that which is true, the content of, or that which supports the content. It actually references Christ himself. So to say that the true church is characterized by Christ's truth is essentially just to say the true church is characterized by Christ. In other words, when people encounter us, as individuals, or when people visit us as a church, what they ought to be struck by is Jesus. Jesus ought to be what stands out to them. Jesus ought to be what characterizes us. Our lives become characterized by a radical commitment to Jesus. And what a church like ours on the conservative side of the spectrum can far too often do is, is create an environment where what makes you a leader or what makes you a good church member is what you know and not your ultimate commitment to Christ. And lots of damage has been done in the American church, 
churches like ours over the years because we've elevated people on the basis of what they know and not who they know. Uh, There was a church I served years ago that had a a guy who was a Sunday school teacher and who was a deacon and and who was the chairman of, of really the most powerful committee in the church, and by all counts, this guy uh, knew, his, knew his X's and O's when it came to doctrine. Uh, he, could teach, he could teach the truths of the Christian faith. People loved what he said about uh, the Christian faith, really learned a lot about Scripture sitting underneath him. The guy was a joke when it came to actually living it out. He, he was a train wreck. He was known not for being the hands and feet of Jesus in our committee or, or, or in our community. He was known for being a jerk in our community. He, his family just rejected faith. I mean, it was a nightmare. This guy was a nightmare, but because we had a system that elevated what you know over who you know, he could be a leader. The true church doesn't do that. The true church emphasizes Christ's truth, which means that we are emphasizing the person of Christ, which means that we are being known by our radical commitment to Jesus and His mission. That's the first thing that the true church does. But the next thing that the true church does or is, is that it is characterized by Christ's love. By Christ's love. Now, our, our culture, our cultural moment, wants to make that statement I just gave, characterized by Christ's love, and make it entirely subjective and hold it hostage to the realm of feelings. Now, let me, let me say something to you. You can't love without feeling. You're going to feel. It's going to affect you at, at that level. But here's how Julie knows I love her. She doesn't know I love her because 30 years ago I said I did. She knows I love her because I'm faithful to her. <laughs> and I'm obedient to her. <laughs> And that is what we mean when we say we love Jesus. We're obedient to what he says. You say, well, I got that. That's easy. No, that is not easy. Because if loving Jesus means being obedient to his commands, then you have to hold tightly to some things that this world will hate you for. But let me also tell you this in this cultural moment. And this will hurt. Loving Jesus means you're going to hold tightly to some things that other church members will hate you for. (laughs) When I became a pastor in 1996 in little rural Tennessee, we were right in the throes of the, the wars that were going on in churches all across America about the the way Jesus wanted us to worship. And there was one side that said Jesus wanted us to worship 
by singing only songs that were created 1,850 years after he walked the earth. And then there was another group that says that Jesus wants us to worship by only using songs that were written 1,980 years after he walked the earth, which on the surface of it's ridiculous. But that's what we were fighting for. And so, I mean, my phone was, you, you had your hymn counters and your chorus counters out there. We'd sing, oh, that's a hymn, oh, that's a chorus, or vice versa, and people just get all worked up, and they'd let you know what was going on. And I thought, you know, I guess my, my cross I'll bear as a pastor is navigating these worship wars until I retire. Well, how cute was that? I wish that was the only thing that I had to, to wrestle with. You couldn't have convinced me in the mid-90s in rural Tennessee that the American church would be trying to tear itself apart on some of the things that it's trying to tear itself apart on right now. You couldn't have convinced me. And yet here we are. We have to understand that the true church is not that church which affirms all of my biases and my preconceived notions. We have to understand that the true church is characterized by Christ's truth, Christ himself, that has a radical commitment to Jesus. A church like ours, which has a mission, remember this, it's hard to remember this because almost as soon as we affirmed it, the world came unglued, but the mission of our church is to establish campuses locally and to plant autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally by 2028, which is our 50th anniversary. And in the midst of that, we should be fulfilling our mission. That's radical. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you be trying to establish more things when every statistical table you want to look at in the world today says that the church is barely hanging on because that's what Jesus wants us to do. He doesn't want us to hide in our corner and say, well, I hope he comes back quick. He wants us to continue to advance the cause. That's radical commitment. That's what we're to do. That's what we need to be characterized by. And then we need to be characterized by, by Christ's love which means that we are holding fast to his, his commands to love each other, even if we disagree on some things, to love each other and to live holy lives, even if it costs us with our friends outside the church or inside the church. That's the true church, and it's not easy. And it's going to start separating the wheat from the chaff in the coming years, I promise you. But whatever discomfort we may experience because of it will pale in comparison to worshiping at the feet of Jesus with the true church from all ages for eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.